This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Getting to Littleness. This is the title of a late September blog from alternative thought leader Albert Bates. Albert is not on the farm, the famous counterculture intentional community in Lewis County, Tennessee. We reached him en route to a permaculture nature preserve in Belize, a little country on the Caribbean just south of Mexico. Before we continue with Albert Bates from the Yucatan, let's hear from the writings of Leopold Kaur. And this was from the late 1970s when Earth had almost 5 billion people and Russia was the Soviet Union. As few recordings of Dr. Kaur exist, our quotes are read by a Radio EcoShock volunteer. The size of nations depends not only on the birth rate, it depends on integration. An integrated society is larger than the same number of people not integrated, and velocity, the speed at which a population begins to move, makes a society larger than one which moves more slowly. So what we suffer from today is not a physical overpopulation, though it gets dangerous with 5 billion alive, but even with these 5 billion, two-thirds of the world is still empty, like Siberia with its immense emptiness. So what we suffer from is a velocity overpopulation. People, when they are integrated, have so many communication needs and centers to visit, tourist places to call on, that that blows up the numerical population, which might be 5 billion. The velocity factor turns it into 50 billion, and it is that which suffocates us. Now, the only way of reducing this is not necessarily birth control, but size control of states to reduce the distances each of us has to cover to perform our daily functions. Not decentralization, but centralization writ small, the small community, which slows down the need for fast movements. And when we move slower, the effective population becomes smaller without a single person being killed. Back to our conversation with Albert Bates. So your latest article comes as number 80 in a series called The Great Pause. What do you mean, The Great Pause? The Great Pause, by that I mean that we've had been offered an opportunity. And it's kind of tragic because you think about this um, pandemic that we've been experiencing these last year and a half or two years. And honestly, it's, it's sad because of so many lives lost and all of the lingering effects of COVID for many families and how that goes on. Uh, so it, in that sense, it's, it's, no, it's no great benefit to us. But on the other hand, we are forced by the pandemic to be in more confined circumstances, to avoid others, to be in situations of isolation or even lockdown. And this is an opportunity to us that's given just at random suddenly that we could take advantage of and, and rethink and many people are doing this. We're starting to see effects in the workplace as people, as organizations and businesses try to rehire people. And people are saying, nah, I don't think I want to go back to the office. I've reexamined my life and not sure I, I want to be a cubicle rat anymore. And so people are going through this process of taking a pause. And we need to do that as a society. We're looking at our shortcomings in health, public health in particular, what we could have done better. Uh, the disparities of income and how that affects the medical responses and so on. And we're thinking in terms also of all the other failings that we have as a society, and not just income inequality, but how we respect the planet or don't respect it 
and what kind of effects that's having as we endure floods and fires and hurricanes and so forth. So this is a moment to take a reassessment. It's just given to us. We can take stock. We can pause. And that's what I mean by the great pause. I'm in week 80 or 81 now of my great pause period in life. Well, let's look back one article on September 19th in the Medium. You wrote about building mouse utopias. Could you tell us what American researcher John B. Calhoun found out when animals get everything they need? John Calhoun was a famous uh, researcher at the National Institutes of Mental Health. And in the 1950s, 1960s, he set up a series of experiments where he placed mice in a uh, controlled environment and they, gave, they had the, all the food, all the water, all the space they needed, the nesting materials and so forth, and they could have as many babies as they wanted. And so, of course, they went crazy. They had a great time for a while. Uh, but then the containers started to get full, and there started to be dysfunctionality in the mouse family. You started to see mothers abandoning their children and uh, fathers fighting with other males. And you started to have these, uh, these negative social effects that occurred, uh, which Calhoun surmised was from the density of the population. He repeated his experiment some 25 times uh, at scales of thousands of mice. And he had, you know, uh, what he called mouse utopia because the mice had everything they could possibly need. But they reached a certain population long before the container was completely full at which they became socially dysfunctional. And in fact, it had epigenetic effects. So he could remove mice from that confinement and place them in a fresh confinement. And he found that the social effects carried over to another generation of mice. Uh, so it was actually a, a long-term uh, damage that was being done to the mice from being in close confinement that way. And that actually had some implications, and Calhoun realized that this actually has implications for the human family, that humans are not designed for living in close confinement with hundreds or thousands of others of our kind, and that actually packing us densely creates negative social effects in our civilization. And according to Dennis Meadows, the co-author of the 1971 Limits to Growth study, the most dangerous time is not during the growth of empire or even the time after it, but in the transition, when uh, there just appear to be no workable answers, is that where we are? We certainly are at a transition point. I think there's no question that we're going to have to transition even if we don't want to because this uh, track we're on is not sustainable. We're going to run out of resources, run out of vital uh, space, if nothing else. And, you know, we're talking now in terms of a blue economy where somehow we're going to build cities on oceans or we're going to make underwater cities or something like that. Or maybe we're going like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos and go off to Mars and colonize some other planet. Well, I don't think that's actually going to happen. There's too many limitations to all of those scenarios. In the case of the oceans, there's a limitation of the species that live there already like whales and dolphins and need that space. So we, we, we can't just keep on going the way we're going. There's a transition in store. And the question is, are we going to consciously think about this and design it well? Or are we just going willy-nilly into whatever uh, fates provide? In an afterword pen for a U.S. edition in 1978, to that book, The Breakdown of Nations, Leopold Kor wrote, 
When I proposed 10 years later at the Boston Convention of the American Economics Association that the question was no longer how to expand, but how to contract, not how to grow, but how to put limits to growth, I still drew nothing but blank stares from fellow economists who dismissed my ideas by referring to me as a poet. Back to my conversation with Albert Bates, recorded from southern Mexico. And one of the series of solutions that you explore comes from Leopold Kor, and he's kind of the father to a dozen small as beautiful live local movements that have come up over the past half century. I wonder why his economy of shrinking could evolve when everyone else was pushing growth. Growth was the mantra, still is. Well, this is, I mean, Core goes back even before uh, E.F. Shoemaker wrote uh, Small is Beautiful. Uh, you know, he goes back to the Second World War and the period, actually he was, he fought in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, and he was thinking in those terms as he watched Europe disassemble uh, and go into chaos, descend into chaos. And then uh, you had the whole, Second World War effect and the rebuilding after the Second World War and his experience of it and he was actually a contemporary of George Orwell at the time and he and Orwell would discuss these things was that it was not a problem of limits in terms of human ingenuity or creativity or ability to invent new machines or things like that. It was actually a limitation on the scale of things the size of things, and it was a natural limit, and we were up against it. And when, when you do that, when you, you put people up against that natural limit, you get the same effects as the mice in the mouse utopias. You get social effects that are negative, where civil disorder occurs. Leopold Kor, read by our volunteer. A growing society, when it reaches a given point, has always exploded, like the supernova in the stars, so the annihilating element awaiting us all is not disunion, but growth, overgrowth. It will not explode. Like the aging colossi of the stellar universe, it will gradually collapse internally, leaving as its principal contribution to posterity its fragments, the little states, until the consolidation process of big power development starts all over again. This is not pleasant to anticipate. What is pleasant, however, is the realization that in the intervening period between the intellectual ice ages of great power domination, history will in all likelihood repeat itself, and the world, little and free once more, will experience another of those spells of cultural greatness which characterize the small state worlds of the Middle Ages and ancient Greece. Back to Albert Bates. And I notice that every country, whether it's the United States, UK, Canada, Australia, it doesn't matter, Germany, they endlessly promote themselves as the only reality. But we know that big nations are actually new experiments. When the Congress of Vienna met in 1815, they drew up new maps after Napoleon. There was no Germany. There were 35 monarchies and four free city-states. So after fleeing Nazi-occupied Europe, Leopold Kor proposed a return to lots of little countries in Europe. It was the exact opposite of what the EU was supposed to do to stop internal wars. What do you see developing in Europe, Albert Bates? It's an interesting period for Europe because certainly Germany is going through a big change right now. 
You've got um, uh, the Scandinavian countries who are on a very different track than some of the Eastern European countries. You're having a, a, the problem of Brexit with uh, people trying to break away from the European Union, and you have the issues of currencies and so forth that are under pressure. So there's, it's a very interesting period in terms of the European experiment of the past several decades of trying to emulate the United States in some fashion, uh, a post-colonial combination of, of countries. And, you know, I, don't, I can't predict where it's going from here or, or what it may go through. I know that CORE studied uh, Arnold Toynbee, and he, he had looked at 28 civilizations, and he noticed a particular kind of pattern where there's a rise and a fall over time, uh, an, an ascent and a descent phase for most civilizations. And the ascent phase tends to be very long, uh, thousands of years even, and the uh, descent phase can be very swift. This was called the Seneca effect after the Roman senator who first observed it. And I think that the, you, you have this possibility that there could be a very rapid decline of these large combinations into more independent small states. And I, I've looked at several small states, and I, I think that they offer a lot that the, the bigger states don't. Core wrote in his 1978 afterward to Breakdown of Nations, The young people of today have yet to grasp that the unprecedented change that has overtaken our time concerns not the nature of our social difficulties, but their scale. Like their elders, they have yet to become aware that what matters is no longer war, but big war, not unemployment, but massive unemployment, not oppression, but the magnitude of oppression, not the poor, who Jesus said will always be with us, but the scandalous number of their multitudes. Nor have they as yet shown any understanding for the real conflict of this age, which is no longer between races, sexes, classes, left and right, youth and age, rich and poor, socialism and capitalism, all hangover confrontations from the past. The real conflict of today is between man and mass, the individual and society, the citizen and the state, the big and the small community, between David and Goliath. But as long as our youth and campus leaders have the same tendency as their national leaders, whom they want to succeed to measure their grandeur by the size of the organizations they command, there is little reason to assume that they will do more for smallness than provide it with an ark and salute it in tribute to its poetry and beauty as it drifts away on the rising waters of the deluge. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. We return to our interview with permaculture guru, lawyer, and biochar author, Albert Bates. Another historic parallel might be in President Theodore Roosevelt's trust busting. At that time in the early 1900s, the tycoons dominated steel, railroad, the gunpowder monopolies. So Teddy Roosevelt broke them up, and I guess that idea continued when Bell Telephone was forced to break into smaller companies. Is this a way forward from centralized power and these huge fortunes towering over us should we break up mega corporations? Yeah, you're getting into a real interesting sticky wicket there because we've got Congress investigating Facebook, Amazon, Google. Yeah, they're having confrontations with China and India and other countries. 
over the, this very point is, are they more powerful than nations now, these multi-billion dollar companies? And so it gets back to that era of the giant trusts and what's in the public interest. Is there really a, an economic benefit to having these larger conglomerates if you can get your, your, your pricing down and your delivery up, delivery speeds up by having an Amazon? Is it really worth it? Uh, from the standpoint of the damage they can do to the small mom-and-pop shops or the fabric of an economy. Leopold Korer blew up the way over complexity ends. He said, quote, It will not explode like the aging colossi of the stellar universe. It will gradually collapse internally, leaving as its principal contribution to posterity its fragments, the little states. So it sounds like he could see this coming, for the Europe and, and maybe even for the United States. I wonder if the United States could break up one day. There's nothing sacred about that. Well, there have been studies over the years about the different regions within the United States. You know, the bioregional movement is quite strong. And I think there are discrete differences between uh, New York and California or Florida and Arizona or Montana and uh, Texas. There are discrete differences that are in some ways determined by nature. Uh, but you, you also think about the history of places like I'm in the Mayan world right now. And here in, in, the, in the Yucatan Peninsula, the classic Maya era is much studied. And it was assumed that somehow it, it uh, disintegrated uh, at some point when their civilization broke down. But in point of fact, the population didn't decline. What happened was the giant city-states became overtop heavy and didn't function well. And so people devolved back into forest peoples living in villages, but the population size never really changed. So it was a, a, a devolution that just naturally occurred, and you still have very large Mayan populations in the Yucatan today. Uh, and in fact, they're larger than they were at the time of the Spanish conquest. So you have to ask, you know, isn't this sort of a natural cycle of things? And isn't it more likely that we'll see more of that, particularly when we get to the levels of complexity now that we have computer sciences and so forth, the levels of complexity that are totally divorced from the traditional levels of complexity that humans can, can associate themselves with or, or historically have grappled with. We're into artificial intelligence that may soon be smarter than us. And what happens then? Later in life, Leopold Kaur told CBC, the Canadian radio show Ideas, on March 12, 1991. What animates the waves of water, as da Vinci said, also explains the waves of wind, of sound, and light. So this is a meta-economics. These are physics outside, beyond economics. And then I am at the door of economics. I open it and see another wave, business cycles. And the reason why economists can't grasp this is that this structure of cycles has changed. These are no longer caused by the irregularities of business activities, which produce spells. They have entirely different non-economic, meta-economic physical origins. What we confront is size cycles. At a given size of integration, things become uncontrollable not only by capitalist intervention, but by state intervention, by communist intervention. We return to our guest, Albert Bates. 
I love Leopold Kor's vision of velocity as a multiplier of population overshoot. It's not just that we are too many billions, but when we integrate and speed up our lives, things go way beyond our control, beyond anyone's control. What do you think? That's it. The idea, and actually, you know, Paul Ehrlich has spoken of this in terms of affluence. Uh, you have the, the classic formula of the impact equaling population times affluence times technology. Uh, and so there are these force multipliers. It's not just having a large population. Core said you could have, you know, 10 billion people living in Siberia if they were in small integrated communities. But once they conglomerate into a consumer society, the pressures are such that it becomes unsustainable. So yes, it can be, can, we can have large populations. The problem is that when we begin to become complex large populations, uh, the pressures on the natural environment become intolerable and we get negative effects that we cannot sustain. In his foreword to the 1978 Dutton edition of Breakdown of Nations, Kirkpatrick Sale wrote, Kirkpatrick Sale wrote, In the real political world, in other words, there are limits, and usually fairly conscribed limits, beyond which it does not make much sense to grow. It is only in small states, Core suggests, that there can be true democracy, because it is only there that the citizen can have some direct influence over the governing institutions, only there that economic problems become tractable and controllable, and economic lives become more rational. Only there that culture can flourish without the diversion of money and energy into statist pomp and military adventure. Only there that the individual in all dimensions can flourish free of systematic social and governmental pressures. Thus the purpose of the modern world might better be directed not to the fruitless pursuit of one-worldism, but to the fruitful development of small, coherent regions, not to the aggrandizement of states, but to the breakdown of nations. And as a European historian, Kor knew the medieval village. Most villagers never traveled further than they could walk, and they married locally. After we've flown around the world, could we do that? And can we still stay on the net if we do do that? This is interesting. I've been here in in this part of the world now for uh, on to 80-some weeks, and I have to say I'm not missing flying. <laughs> I used to fly a lot. I would travel to conferences in London or Paris or Madrid. Uh, I would teach uh, permaculture in China once or twice a year. I would teach in Belize. I would teach in Latin America. And it's like, okay, I haven't been traveling at all, and you know what? I don't miss it. In fact, I'm much more enjoying my sedentary lifestyle in, in a small village here. And I think that there is an adjustment that some people are very much uh, associated there. That they put their lives on this particular kind of track. But it's not something that is that we're we necessarily wedded to. You know, it's a, it's a psychological construct. But it's like any addiction. It can be broken. I think that conspiracy theorists want to find that central nexus of control in modern society. They want to find those conniving billionaires and hidden bankers who work day and night to enslave us. 
But Albert, what if there is nobody in control? What if we are just twisting away from the natural world and we don't have a plan and, and no ability to stop? You know, Alex, I have met those people. <laughs> and I have to tell you, they're not in control. Uh, I've, I've been with the, those top bankers and billionaires and so on. I've been fortunate enough to be in, in rooms, small rooms, having discussions about the future of the world with some of those folks. And they're at a loss. They don't know how to deal with it. They're, they're, they're surrounded by the rabble that's going to eat them if they're not careful and they know it. <laughs> so it's not that anyone's really in control. It's that we do have an opportunity for conscious design going forward, however. And that's one of the benefits that we've achieved in this scale of our civilization over the past century is that we have become much better at training ourselves and at learning what are the things that we can do right and what are the things that we shouldn't be doing. And from that, we can now go forward and consciously design better systems. And it's all about system design and integrating that with ecological design so that we're actually benefiting nature, which is what we all need. But I don't see a lot of momentum for revolutionary change. Most people I know hope to go back to normal, even though normal kills nature and is crushing our hope for a climate future. Uh, do we just have to wait around for more crisis to drive things apart and, and then we'll try and fix things? Well, I see the same thing you see, but I also see the other side, which is there are a whole lot of seeds that have been sown, and there are people all over the world who are doing exactly the right thing and moving in the correct direction and, and uh, skilling up and getting better at what they do. And I'm also seeing at the top, you know, the, the, the titans of industry turning to those people and saying, hmm, maybe we need to empower you more. And they're looking for shovel-ready projects that will address climate change uh, by drawdown, that will start to restore biodiversity, that will rebuild and regenerate forests and the ocean and so forth. So I'm seeing very favorable signs despite the negative trends that we've, we've been experiencing for so long. Well, I found your article, Getting to Littleness, at your website, peaksurfer.blogspot.com, and that's really worth looking at, people, peaksurfer.blogspot.com. And you begin by asking, what do Finland, Iceland, and Estonia have in common apart from less sunlight and high snowfall? And what is the answer to that? Talk to us about that, Albert. Well, what they have in common, I would say, is that there's, they, they've learned that you don't have to try to compete at the scale of a United States or a, a China, uh, that you can be quite content doing what you're doing at the scale that you're at, and you can actually do better in terms of the real indexes, which are like the happiness index and the human growth betterment indices that you find. You know, at the end of the Second World War, all three of those countries, Iceland, Finland, Estonia, were in uh, foreign control. And, and Finland managed to buy its way out. It gave up the city of Vyberg and paid a large amount of war reparations to the Soviet Union. And it formally apologized for fighting against them. And in return, they became a free and independent country. And today, they are always at the top of the World Happiness Report. They're one of the most comprehensive social welfare systems in the world. They mint unicorn tech startups, you know, billion-dollar capitalizations with amazing frequency. 
Uh, and they're also the highest concentration of cooperatives uh, relative to their population. And you can see a similar story in Iceland. Uh, they became uh, independent of Denmark in 1944. Uh, and because of their fintech sector, their Iceland is, a, is one of the most prosperous countries in the world. And you find that uh, they have a coalition government that's 81.4% voter turnout during the most recent elections. And they get 85% of their electricity from renewables, domestically produced. Uh, they have the second highest quality of life in the world. And based on the Gini coefficient, they also have one of the lowest rates of income inequality in the world. Uh, so they're very, very happy and, and healthy into old age. You have uh, Estonia with its singing revolution, nonviolent revolution that broke it away from the Soviet Union in 1991 uh, or 1994. And today it's got a young uh, prime minister, female, and a uh, government that's – it also has a, a female – has both a female prime minister and a president. I think it's the only country that can claim that. Uh, it has 99% of public services available online. So you can get, you know, broadband universally there. They have 109 languages spoken, balanced budget. And again, they're minting unicorns as fast as Iceland or Finland. So, you know, I think this is uh, saying something. What they have found there is that they have understood that where they needed to go was back to a level that they can sustain and that is in harmony with nature. It's not destroying their lives. It's not wrecking their children's future. And they got people's support because they can muster that with a small population, and they got it done. And that's something that Leopold Kor certainly would have applauded, as would Fritz Schumacher, that small is beautiful, and here's some perfect examples of all that. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. This is Radio EcoShock. We are exploring the way back to littleness with the help of our guest environmental lawyer, author, and permaculture teacher, Albert Bates. The interview includes a series of quotes from Leopold Kor, instigator of the vision that small works better than big, as selected by Albert Bates. I know you as a pretty complex person. You usually have several threads going on at one time at a high level, and yet you still somehow got your feet planted down in some permaculture ground. Well, what are you working on these days? Well, my organization is the Global Village Institute for Appropriate Technology. You know, in 1974, we were founded as the Global Village Technology, but we added in the appropriate part. So what distinguishes appropriate? Appropriate technology is ethical, sustainable, uh, beneficial for everyone, appropriate size. Schumacher said that we have lots of things for the individual scale and for the industrial scale, but we've been losing that middle range, the village scale, the neighborhood scale. You know, there's no blacksmith shop on the corner that can repair your Tesla. Uh, and we have this mindset that giant institutions solve problems better than small groups. And that's quite often wrong. Uh, moreover, it's fragile because we're seeing now that, we, you know, the global chip shortage, the failure of one link in the supply chain can break everything in the chain. 
So now we're approaching climate uh, pretty much in the same way, like, like it's a moonshot, and we have these X prizes. And so we're trying to industrialize our way out of it without understanding that it was industrialization that got us into it. For me, when I'm, when I'm looking at my own personal work and what I'm doing here in the rural tropics is a robust climate solution that would draw down tens of billions of tons of carbon dioxide equivalent per year. It should self-finance. It should have its own incentives and be maintained uh, into the de- indefinite future, whatever comes. It should be durable. It should be robust. It should be anti-fragile. Uh, it should be able to handle climate change and or civilizational collapse, even nuclear Armageddon or even near-term human extinction. It should still continue on without us. It should not have negative social, environmental, or economic impacts. It should tick off as many sustainable development goals as possible, and it should be accomplished at a small, local, or regional scale. It shouldn't need government subsidies or any kind of government push, but it makes sense on its own merits and would therefore scale horizontally by word of mouth, virally, in millions of small, similar projects of, of like kind. And, you know, I'm familiar with all of the various competitors for the Carbon Drawdown X Prize, and I can appreciate the people who are working on direct air capture, marine permaculture, kelp forests, uh, remineralization, similar efforts. My own work at the moment concerns rewilding. Uh, I'm restoring mixed-age, mixed-species forests and using processes like patch harvesting and agroforestry to earn livings for local people. The biggest source of long-term drawdown at the gigaton scale, which is what we need, as well as the biggest potential profit-making enterprise, in, in my view, is biochar, and I've been writing about that, which we've been we've been learning about this. It, it has tens of thousands of potential uses from fertilizer to cattle feed to highways to batteries to your smartphone. In our system, the biochar idea is disruptive because it, it comes from waste material and it costs less than what folks are presently using. And the biochar products are often many times better than what we currently have. So the particular project I'm on addresses the refugee crisis, which is being felt in Mexico and Belize from the droughts and the monster storms in Guatemala, Honduras, and Salvador. It's not only reforestation, but also coral reef repair. We're doing a ridge-to-reef ecosystem regeneration to repair and rebuild the southern part of the Great Mayan Reef in the Port Honduras Marine Reserve using a system of bio-rock underwater and biochar upstream to cleanse the rivers flowing into the reef system and also to restore the coastal mangroves. The biochar will come from cooperative agroforestry, enterprise hubs we call village cool labs that can supply massive employment for migrant groups. The first prototype is funded by an organization called NOAA Regen, which focuses on the blue economy and regeneration of the ocean ecosystem. And as we work out the kinks here, we hope to see it replicated for the Great Barrier Reef in Australia and in many other locations. And that's all you're up to. That's fantastic. It's amazing, and it applies to our problems right now on the ground. I really love that stuff. We've been working with lawyer, author, and visionary Albert Bates, the longtime resident of the farm in Tennessee. You can find links to Albert's work, his blog, and all that in my own show blog at ecoshock.org or head over to peaksurfer.blogspot.com. Albert, it's so good to connect with you. Thank you. 
Good talking to you as always, Alex, and I wish you the very best of days. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. We conclude with this quote from Leopold Kor from his own introduction to the 1957 edition of Breakdown of Nations, as read by our Radio Ecoshock volunteer. Oversimplified as this may seem, we shall find the idea more easily acceptable if we consider that bigness or oversize is really much more than just a social problem. It appears to be the one and only problem permeating all creation. Wherever something is wrong, something is too big. And if the body of people becomes diseased with the fever of aggression, brutality, collectivism, or massive idiocy, it is not because it has fallen victim to bad leadership or mental derangement. It is because human beings, so charming as individuals or in small aggregations, have been welded into over-concentrated social units such as mobs, unions, cartels, or great powers. That is when they begin to slide into uncontrollable catastrophe. For social problems, to paraphrase the population doctrine of Thomas Malthus, have the unfortunate tendency to grow at a geometric ratio with the growth of the organism of which they are part, while the ability of man to cope with them, if it can be extended at all, grows only at an arithmetic ratio, which means that if a society grows beyond its optimum size, its problems must eventually outrun the growth of those human faculties which are necessary for dealing with them. Hence it is always bigness, and only bigness, which is the problem of existence, social as well as physical. And all I have done, infusing apparently disjointed and unrelated bits of evidence into an integrated theory of size, is to demonstrate first that what applies everywhere applies also in the field of social relations, and secondly, that if moral, physical, or political misery is nothing but a function of size, if the only problem is one of bigness, the only solution must lie in the cutting down of the substances and organisms which have outgrown their natural limits. The problem is not to grow, but to stop growing. The answer, not union, but division. That was from the alternative economist Leopold Kor, writing in his 1957 book, The Breakdown of Nations. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. As world leaders meet, the best scientific predictions seriously underestimate how extreme weather will be even just a couple of decades ahead. Who says so? Five scientists from University of Oxford, University of Edinburgh, and lead author Chris O'Reilly, now from University of Exeter. They find even the best projections are too tame for extreme weather events in the 2040s, especially for the U.S. Northeast and Northern European winters. The chances of more extreme seasons, including summer heat and drought, are also increasing as the planet warms. Dr. Christopher O'Reilly is Royal Society Research Fellow at the University of Reading's Department of Meteorology. Chris O'Reilly, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hi, Alex. Nice to join you. Well, here on the ground, we humans experience seasons year by year, but scientists can see those longer cycles that we don't. Chris, your new paper was published in September 20th, 2021, but we won't really understand anything about it unless we get the first two words of the paper right, and those are internal variability. What do you mean by that? 
Internal variability covers a range of features in the climate system. So that can be things like uh, ocean currents, atmospheric dynamics. Um, and, th- and it's the atmospheric dynamics that we're really focused on in this paper. So that's the year-to-year changes in wind speeds and the way that they affect the weather. And in many ways, it's, it's really analogous to what we experience every day. We know that, for example, if you live in the UK, in the winter, if, if, if you get wind coming from the east, uh, we know it's going to be cooler. Now, on a year-to-year basis and then on longer time scales, these things aren't quite as extreme, but they affect uh, the climate, the climate anomalies that we experience on the surface in the same way. In our study, the internal variability is really referring to variability in the winds in the atmosphere. And what brought your team to question predictions from even the best climate models? So it's a slight subtlety, and this is something that has been covered in, in some other papers previously. Um, one of the things is that actually the, it's not that the models are completely wrong. It's, it's a, when I say it's a slight subtlety, what I mean is that it's the decadal variability in the winds that really aren't picked up by the models. Now, we have to be slightly humble here because when we look at the observational record, we've, we've, got, we've got a limited observational record. Um, when we look at a couple of client models, we can run them for as long as we like on big computers, and we can get good statistics that we understand. Whereas what, what actually happens is when we look at the observations, we don't have quite as many statistics. However, there are some, there are some conclusions that we can draw, and one is that um, in the extra tropics, so that's in the mid-latitudes, basically, the decadal variance in wind in these regions tends to be much larger in the observational record that we have compared to what we see in the couple climate models. And one of the most impressive Earth system models is the Max Planck Institute for Meteorology Grand Ensemble 35. What is that, and do those model results get used by actual policymakers? Uh, yes, so that's just that's one of the models that is used commonly uh, within the climate community. So the, the, these models go into things like the, the, the IPCC assessment reports and these kinds of things. Um, specifically, the Max Planck uh, Institute Grand Ensemble is quite unique in that it's 100 members. So basically what they've done is with this, they've taken a single model and they've integrated it forward. But by, by changing the initial conditions, you get, a, you get 100 different realizations, if you like, of what we could expect. And when they do this with, with a particular model, what you tend to do is try to try to run a historical simulation, which will start sometime in the past. You force it with things like external forcing that we, that we think we can estimate pretty accurately. These are things like greenhouse gas concentrations, solar forcing, even volcanic eruptions, these types of things. And then you can also integrate it into the future following particular climate scenarios. The unique thing about this grand ensemble that has 100 members is exactly that. It's that it's got 100 members. So we can really get quite a quite a consistent forced picture. So basically by averaging over all of these uh, 100 members, what we actually do is you can average out the internal variability. So you can really separate what we think is the internal variability from what is the forced change in the model or forced changes in time, going back in time, but also then going into the future. Well, I have to be honest, your paper is not easy. It's not really for public consumption. Some of the methods employed are beyond most of us, but we can build some trust because your group cross-checked a multitude of model runs against a record from hard observational data from the past 100 years. Where does that observational data come from? So most of the observational data that we use in this paper comes from sea-level pressure observations. So these are basically barometer observations taken at weather stations. And these are uh, the same types of observations that you could take if you have a barometer in your in your kitchen or in your house, right? These, these things are quite old instruments in a way. The nice thing about 
taking observations from sea level pressure is that sea level pressure has a, has a large spatial scale to it. So we don't think that there's too much noise in the record. Now, of course, we have to be quite humble and careful about you know, going back further in time. As you go back further in time, there's less observations. Less reliable is probably the wrong way to think about it, but there, there tends to be less of them, so we can, we can constrain the, the variability maybe less on, a, on longer time scales. But it, it's sea level pressure observations that we really rely on, and these are just taken from barometers. And did I get this right? Are global climate models more wrong about winters than summers? And does that matter? They are, in a sense, yes. So you, so you are right there, yeah. One of the problems is that in, in the winter, there is a large amount of decadal variability in the large-scale circulation. So these are the winds and how they, how they vary from decade to decade. And we can infer this from sea level pressure. Um, that's one of the, the kind of strengths of sea level pressure, is that if we know the sea level pressure field, that gives us a really good handle on what's called the geostrophic wind. So on longer timescales, the wind is, is in geostrophic balance. So by, from the sea level pressure, we can do a good job of inferring what the wind speed's doing. Are, are we more wrong about winters and summers, and does that matter? Well, it, it's not that the models, they, they are actually, yes. The, the bottom line is that they are. Um, and the reason is that the wind advection has a larger impact on surface climate in, in the winter. The variability is, is underestimated in the summer as well as the winter. However, it has a bigger impact in winter. But, there are, but we have to also be humble and say that, that there are potentially things that we're missing in the summer. So even though, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't confidently say that this isn't a problem in the summer. I would just say that from our study, we couldn't demonstrate that it would, would be a bigger issue as it is in the winter. You know, another subject that I've seen you work on in other papers is teleconnection. It involves teleconnection, and the public doesn't understand much about this. To be frank, I don't understand a lot about it. What are teleconnections, and how have you used them in your science? So teleconnections, they can mean two things. They're often in the literature, people refer to remote teleconnections. These are effectively where you get something happening in one area of the, of the climate system that can affect circulation in another area. And when we say circulation, what we really mean is the winds and the impact that they will have on, on climate at the surface. I, I guess the most famous teleconnection would be the, um, the teleconnection to the extratropics from the El Nino Southern Oscillation. So this is where patterns of convection shift in the tropics, and this affects winds in the extratropics. What it does is it changes where you get outflow at the, in the upper level of the troposphere, and that, and that shifts the wind in the extratropics. And that's what ultimately controls the link between the El Nino and uh, climate and, well, weather in the United States. So it's that kind, of, that kind of link between something happening in one place and shifting winds in another place. But it's not, it's not limited to these tropical to extratropical teleconnections. There are examples, for example, when, when we get anomalies in the stratosphere. I don't know if you have guests thinking about um, stratosphere recently on your show. When you get anomalies in the stratosphere, they can effectively sort of percolate down and affect winds in the troposphere as well. And that, and that is in some way a, a teleconnection as well. Yeah, in 2017, I spoke with Ivana Sivanovic. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And she was one of five scientists at Lawrence Livermore National Lab who found that the future loss of Arctic sea ice cover could drive a substantial decrease in California's rainfall. And she explained what she called a double teleconnection. And putting it in my words, a temperature change in the Arctic altered air in the Pacific, and that changed rains over California like a chain reaction. It sounds pretty complicated out there in the atmosphere, Chris. Yes, these, these, these things are complicated. They're particularly complicated because of, I mean, I mean, the example you've just said, I'm not completely familiar exactly with that work in detail. The problem is, 
as you can see, when there's kind of two things going on, it's not just knowing how one thing influences another. We kind of need to model these things correctly. We need to get the exact strength right because then, then the strength of the secondary connection then will matter. So these are these are the, the kind of complicated things, and, and we're asking models to do this, which is exactly the right thing to do. You know, we, we and because they, they they should have all of the physics built into them. But these are slight things that we don't think are quite right in models can have a knock-on effect on through these kind of teleconnections and links you're you're describing. So these things are complicated. That's not to say that we you know shouldn't try to understand them, but also maybe that we should uh, retain some humility in, in in doing so. And how solid are these principles of teleconnection? Do some scientists doubt or discount long-range interactions in the atmosphere like that? I don't think there's too many scientists necessarily doubt them. There's certainly active research going on in various areas. One example would be the, the paper that we recently pu- had published that you were talking about earlier. Um, in, that, in that paper, we found that there's, there's very weak decadal variability in, in the large-scale circulation, but, but we don't really understand exactly where this would come from. Um, we think that it's potentially linked to the fact that in even seasonal forecast models, teleconnections, uh, the predictable teleconnections, are very weak in models. So the, what, what, what you find is that models can, can predict teleconnections in a skillful way, but actually they don't predict the magnitude of these quite as well as they should. And we think that this is likely linked to this, the models having weak variability on longer timescales. So there is a kind of a pattern here of, of some, some consistent issues with modeling these teleconnections. But, but actually there's kind of the answer as to why is not, is not totally clear. So there's many interesting kind of ongoing research questions in this area. Well, yes, on your new paper on built-in variability of climate, the key question is, how can we know if wild weather we experience is new as opposed to the cold heat or storms reported in old newspapers and journals? Uh, how do we know that our pollution of the atmosphere has made weather more extreme? There's two things there. One is a purely empirical basis, and, and there's growing evidence empirically by just looking at the data. Um, and the second thing, I think, is that most of these predictions are interpretations of more, of more extreme weather are based on physical principles that we understand well. And, and a simple example of this is looking at observations of extreme rainfall, but also looking at observations of humidity in the atmosphere. As, as, as we're warming the planet, the atmosphere is holding more water. That's what we expect from fairly elementary physics now, really. We expect that. And then as a result, we expect that there can be more extreme rainfall. So these, these are kind of basic things that not only do we understand... Do we think we understand it from, or, or can we kind of imply it from the data? But also, it's based on fundamental physical principles, which I think I think we all want to do our science based on physical principles, not just on data analysis or anything like that. So, so I really think that whilst this, you know, you can probably find some some extremes that aren't getting worse, possibly if you hunt around. Most of the extremes that are getting worse, we understand based on physical principles, what we things that we would expect from warming the planet due to more CO2. This is Radio EcoShock. Laid up your iPod or computer with tons of free green audio from our website at www.ecoshock.org. That's E-C-O, shock like an electric shock, dot org. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. Our guest is Dr. Christopher O'Reilly, University of Reading. We are investigating destabilized weather in the Northern Hemisphere during the coming decades. Your team also looks at extreme seasons. How do you define an extreme season? 
this is uh, an extension of the method that, that kind of came out with, of our approach. We defined this extreme season very simply as a one in 20 year event over a recent climatological period. So it was basically just over a recent period, what was the wettest or warmest season that we occurred, or, or the coolest season or the driest season. So these kind of one in 20 year events that, we, that are easily empirically measured. Did some parts of the Northern Hemisphere just go through an extreme season in this summer of 2021? I'm very sure that they did. I, I, well, yes, I suppose they did, didn't they? Particularly in, in, the, in North America. So I suppose, I suppose Australian uh, wildfires and warm temperatures in Canada, I suppose, would have, would have qualified as that. We saw heat that we've never seen before, absolutely off the record. And in fact, just last week, it was 100 degrees at the end of September in uh, North Dakota, which is just crazy talk. That's, it, it's the hottest temperature ever recorded that far north that late in the season. So we're, we're still setting records as we go along here. Now, what makes you think in coming decades we will go beyond extreme events in the mid-latitudes to entire extreme seasons, or, or did I get that right? So I, I think in our analysis, we, we weren't really looking at individual extreme events on a kind of a weekly or two-weekly timescale, because our, our method was really just looking at these seasonal anomalies. Um, we were only looking at it just different. So this is, what, this is why it's kind of loosely, you know, it's not extreme in the sense that of flooding and things. It's extreme in the sense of over a whole season, do you expect it to be warmer, uh, warmer than you know, any other, any, any year in the last 20 years. Um, so that's the kind of, those are the kind of extremes that we were talking about in this paper. Has there been time for the modeling community to respond to the problems you and your colleagues raise? Um, well, I think it's, I would, I would say that, uh, that, that the problems that we raise in, in some ways, we're not raising them directly. These are, some of these aspects are kind of known about before and this, these are ongoing problem is one of our one of our real focuses in the paper was to try to understand well okay if models aren't getting enough decade variability what does that mean for future projections um and we really we really wanted to just kind of work out okay well what, what are we what are we what are we really missing here um and we were able to to show that there's substantial future uncertainty that is probably underestimated uh in the current models Two of your team are from the University of Edinburgh, and I wonder, should we presume world leaders at the Edinburgh Climate, Sum for, uh, Climate Summit at the end of October will be still using model projections that underestimate how extreme weather could become in the coming decades? Um, well, again, I would say that uh, you know, we're, we're looking at extreme future climates here. We're, we're, we're looking at kind of we're looking at the uncertainty in projecting kind of longer-term climate. Um, I think it's probably fair to say that, um, you know, if you, if you zoom out from, from this particular study, that we do need to be a bit cautious and a bit humble about what, what our modelling efforts can show. And actually, you know, being being cautious, because there's, there's, uh, we, we go beyond this, the realm of science and to into policy decisions, but I do think, you know, these things have to be taken seriously, and and thinking about worst possible outcomes and trying to plan for them is, is really a prudent thing to do, and, and accepting that maybe things that are outside of our current model range could be, that, that things that, they, that, that could be possible, I think planning for those things would be um, a prudent thing to do. 
You know, it seems like with every paper and interview I do, the future looks more murky and uh, more unstable than we thought. It, it's generally climate change is worse than we thought. Am I just calling the wrong scientists? Uh, no, well, <laughs> I don't think you are. Um, I would actually say, though, Alex, that, that, that my, my, uh, our paper that we've just had published, in some ways this, this is quite um, balanced on the on this sense of, of kind of what could be more extreme. If what we're really saying is that the uncertainty is probably underestimated. So actually things are more uncertain than we think. So that could be, for example, in the Northern Hemisphere winters, we could get, um, you know, th- things could be, could, could not be much warmer or much wetter than we expect. We could get much drier than we expect. In, in some sense, our paper is quite neutral on these things, but, but, but equally they could be warmer than models are currently predicting. So it's, yeah, I suppose we could get lucky and it could not be so bad, but I wouldn't, I, I don't, I don't think that's a, that's a great policy decision, is it really? Even if that's what we might be doing. (laughs) I think so. You know, the fact that we are doing such a grand experiment and things become so uncertain, right there should be setting off a lot of alarms, in my opinion. Just that, not necessarily that we know that we're doomed or we're not, but the fact that we don't know. That's that's more or less where I say, Alex. I don't think there's there's nothing to be gained by being overly uh some people refer to it as doomerism i don't nothing to be gained by that but but equally there is an element of waking up and being cautious and preparing for the worst people do this all the time in their everyday lives you know people have house insurance and things right in case the worst happens or life insurance and all these kinds of things the idea that people wouldn't prepare for the worst when it comes to the climate is uh is probably a bit silly so from the Department of Meteorology at the University of Reading, we've been talking with Royal Society University Research Fellow Christopher O'Reilly. Find links to all the science we talked about in my weekly show blog, published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. Chris, thank you for talking with us. That's it for this show. Check out all our past programs free at ecoshock.org. Thank you for listening, and let's meet up again next week.